This is a work of fiction. Honest. Ragbag presents Brollywood, episode 6. Written and performed by Frank Burton. The story you're listening to right now is being released as a book, by the way. It will also be called Brollywood. It's the third in the Ragbag series, the first two being Everything I Am and Getting Away With It. Don't worry if you're not familiar with those books or the original podcast that spawned them. This is a good place to start. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting this show by buying several copies of all three books and giving them away to everyone you know, or just give one book to one person. That's a reasonable start. Let's get on with the story. We have a few questions, said Noddy. He'd just spent the last ten minutes explaining to Benedict who the hand were. Benedict had nodded along, as though all of this made perfect sense. Go ahead, I said. By the way, Noddy added, if I haven't said this already, I think this is an ingenious plan. It's not without its risks, but when properly executed, it's virtually a guaranteed win. I was hoping you'd say it was terrible, said Benedict. Then at least these hand chaps will be likely to discard it. That being said, I don't quite understand how they'd be able to go through with the plan anyway. The plan relies on me being there, in person. Otherwise, how could they enter the building, enter the vault? Simple, said Noddy. Your plan relies on impersonation, so will theirs. But they couldn't impersonate me, said Benedict. They'd need to physically resemble me for a start. Even with advanced prosthetics, there's no way they'd convince my own colleagues at Brollywood. Some of them are very good friends of mine. It's still possible, said Noddy. It wouldn't be possible for a regular person. And with all due respect, it would be equally impossible for an actor of your calibre. But for a government agent who's been trained from birth in the art of infiltration, it can be done. I could do it myself. How? said Benedict. Are you one of these hand people too? I'm not, said Noddy, but I too was trained in the art of infiltration, from birth no less. Really? I said. Yes, said Noddy. Sorry, Frank, I never told you about my mother, did I? You didn't. There's a reason I haven't, he said. For once, it has nothing to do with the community's secrets. It's simply the case that I'd rather not dwell on my childhood. For the most part, it was a horrible existence. You could say those experiences made me the man I am today, but nonetheless... They're the opposite of happy memories. But you know what? We have an actor here with us today, so maybe it's a good time to tell the story. Benedict's video jerked from side to side as he shifted his position in the back seat of his car. You okay, mate? I said. Yes, he said, just getting myself comfortable for Noddy's story. My feet are a bit cold, but the breeze feels good. How do you mean? I said. Hang on a minute, are you lying on the back seat of your car with your feet poking out of the window? Yes. And this is your way of appearing inconspicuous? Oh, you think I might be drawing attention to myself? 
You probably look like a badly concealed corpse. It's a wonder no one's called the police yet. Uh, good point, Frank. I think I'll sit up after all. Stick a face mask on, I said. You're a bank robber now. Start looking like one. Ha, he said. <laughs> yes. So, Noddy told us all about his childhood. His mother was an actor. Like most actors, she was not well known. Also, she began her career in the 1930s, when there were far fewer opportunities, particularly for women. She managed to find minor theatre work here and there, but the job wasn't enough to pay the bills on its own, so she took on a part-time teaching position. The Second World War broke out, meaning, amongst other things, there were even fewer opportunities for female actors. She began teaching full-time. Shortly after the war ended, she found herself pregnant, a single unmarried mother at a time when such a thing was even more unthinkable than a woman with a career in acting. Noddy never knew who his father was, but from what he could gather, the guy was wealthy and would prefer it if his involvement in the pregnancy was withheld from public view. Whatever the circumstances, Noddy's mother suddenly found herself with both an unborn child and a large sum of money with which to conveniently disappear. She bought a house in a remote part of the English countryside, a few miles outside a small village, which itself lay several miles away from anywhere else. Noddy was born in that house, and lived there until he was 17 years old. During all of that time, he was not permitted to pass beyond the garden gate. He didn't either. His mother had convinced him he'd be taken away and put in a children's home if he were ever found. And so, for the first 17 years of his life, it was a rare occasion that Noddy actually laid eyes on another human being, other than his mother, and his own reflection in the mirror. When the occasional delivery or repairman arrived at the door, Noddy was forced to hide. He'd listen to the voices on the radio with endless fascination. When he reached the age of ten, his mother bought him a television set. For the first time, he was able to glimpse the mysterious black and white world beyond their home. He watched obsessively when his mother wasn't teaching him. His schooling lasted several hours each day, weekends included. His mother taught him how to read and write and do some basic arithmetic, but mostly Noddy was taught how to act. She was a trained actor herself, as well as a trained teacher. This in itself was a good start. If Noddy had been trained in the same way his mother had, presumably this could have all led to a very successful career in drama, given his access to hours of one-to-one tuition on a daily basis. But as the years passed, it became clear that his mother wasn't training him up for the stage. This was something more than that. On the surface, it may have appeared that Mrs Noddy, or whatever her name was, wanted her son to have the career she'd never had access to. That wasn't the case. She just wanted him to have a good life and fit into society like a regular person once this secret childhood of his was over and done with. With this in mind, Noddy was trained to slot himself comfortably into any social situation. The trouble was, this was largely theoretical. Noddy had never met anyone else his own age. He'd seen pictures of other children in books, but that was all. In its own way, that was fine, because by the time he eventually met a real child, he'd be an adult himself, so learning how to relate to children as peers was deliberately left off the curriculum. To put it bluntly, Noddy was never granted the privilege of a childhood. His education was focused almost entirely on navigating his way through the adult world. At some point, 
Noddy's mother, who'd been downplaying her son's extraordinary gift for mimicry, had a sudden change of heart. She decided Noddy should make use of the eclectic range of voices he'd picked up from TV and radio. She set her son the challenge of adopting a range of different personas. Perhaps this would prove useful in different social situations. Over time, Noddy's invented personas took up the majority of his time. By the time he reached the age of 14, he was constantly in character. He couldn't even remember what his natural speaking voice sounded like. In fact, Noddy was unsure if he had a natural speaking voice at all. He was a blank slate, a man with no default personality. He didn't have a name either. His characters had names, but he didn't. His mother told him the time would come when he could choose a name for himself. One day, during Noddy's mid-teens, a man came to the house. Noddy never saw the man's face. He hid in the kitchen cupboard. He kept the door open just wide enough to overhear the conversation in the living room. The man claimed to have spent many months attempting to track his mother down. He knew about the circumstances of Noddy's birth. He knew who his father was. He knew he'd been born and raised in secret. How could you possibly know all this? said Noddy's mother in a tone he'd never heard her speak in before. Tracking people like yourself and your son down is my specialism, said the man. This may surprise you, but you're not a unique case by any means. Your son isn't the first person to have been born and raised off the books. As a matter of fact, I was raised that way myself. It's become my mission to track down all the other lost children. My son isn't lost, Noddy's mother replied firmly. Never was, never will be. I appreciate that, said the man, but until today he has never been found. What do you want from us, she said. Nothing really, said the man. I don't believe you. You say you've spent months trying to track me down. For what purpose? I wanted to invite you to join our community, said the man. I was wrong to describe it as nothing. The community is something all right. Something utterly extraordinary. Everyone involved at every possible level is in some way a secret person, either because they don't officially exist or because, like yourself, they gave birth to a member of the community. Many of us were born under similar circumstances to your son. I was myself. My father is a rich and powerful man who thinks nothing of paying off the mothers of his children on the understanding that they disappear and remain silent. Other community members have had more complex upbringings. I won't go into all of that now. So what does your community do? She said. We help each other. We have our own self-sufficiency program. We grow our own food. We share everything we've ever earned or acquired. We live together in a big house. You live together in a big house, said Noddy's mother. Years later, listening to this story, both Benedict and myself reacted in the same way Noddy's mother had. We repeated the question. You live together in a big house. We do, said Noddy, and he continued with his story. When his mother said, you live together in a big house, the man replied, we do. Where is this house, she said. I'd rather not say at this stage, said the man. Let's just say it's in a remote location, enveloped within acres of private land, land that's owned by ourselves. So, you're rich, she said. Collectively, yes, said the man. Everything we've earned or inherited or acquired by some other means, it all becomes the property of the community. So, you're communists. 
We're not communists, said the man. We're a family. An unconventional one for sure, but a family nonetheless. I see, said Noddy's mother. So you're suggesting that my son and I come and join your family. That's exactly what I'm saying. No, thank you. Really, I suggest you think about this first, said the man. Wait until you hear about some of our activities. We're a family already, she said. We don't need to join someone else's family, just because there happens to be only two of us. I was only using the word family metaphorically, said the man. Community is the word to focus on here. Surely that's what the two of you are lacking right now. Well, perhaps we are, said Noddy's mother. But answer me this, what happens when my boy becomes a man? Let's say we agree to come and live in a big house with a bunch of strangers. What would happen when my boy grows up? Would he move out, make his own way in the world, or would he stay in your little communist recruitment camp for life? We're not communists, said the man gently. Answer the question, said Noddy's mother. Well, said the man, it is a good question, and you were right to ask before agreeing to anything. Strictly speaking, community membership is for life, so yes, once you're part of the community, you're effectively removing yourself from the rest of society. The idea of a child growing up and flying the nest, as they say, that's not what we're about. I want my son to have a normal life, she said, or as close to normality as possible, after being camped out here in the middle of nowhere. He hasn't had what you would call a conventional education, but he's been taught every day of his life how to act when he's out there in the real world. When he's finished his training, he'll have the skills to do whatever he likes. He could live comfortably in any city in the world. And even with no formal qualifications, he can get by on the basis of how he presents himself. This may not be the perfect solution to our predicament, but it's the best I can do. The perfect solution to your predicament, echoed the man. That's it. That's what the community is. We're everything you're looking for and more. You want your son to fit in somewhere? Join the community. You want your son to be just like everyone else? Join the community. Sure, he'll never find a place within wider society, but let's be honest, he doesn't belong there. He belongs with people who were raised the same way he was. I've heard enough, said Noddy's mother. I'd like you to leave now. I need to resume my son's schooling. Could I meet your son before I go? Absolutely not. Maybe next time. There will be no next time. I'm asking you never to come here again. I'm asking you to forget about me and my son. Leave us alone. I'll be happy to do that, said the man, but please do consider what we've spoken about today. If you ever wish to investigate further, I'll consider it, she said. I appreciate you coming here today and showing an interest in us. I'll do as you've suggested and think about what you said, but I know my own mind and the answer will always be no. What would your son's answer be? I beg your pardon. I'm just saying, which life would he prefer? A life of uncertainty in a world he knows nothing about? Or a life of fulfilment, security, guaranteed wealth and the membership of the most exclusive club in Britain? With all due respect, she said, you're beginning to sound like a cult leader. Maybe that's exactly what I am, said the man. Maybe that's what the community is. If you join us, for example, you will do so on the understanding that this house and everything inside it plus the contents of your bank account, plus any other investments, will no longer be yours. They will be the property of the community. 
But of course, you yourselves will be part of that and you'll share the rest of our fabulous wealth. Technically, you'll be much richer. Also, you won't actually own anything anymore. The one thing I can assure you is this. When I say I can promise you and your son a life of fulfillment, security and guaranteed wealth, I'm not lying. If you care to ask any other member of the community, they'll confirm that's exactly what we have. As I say, said Noddy's mother, I have things to do, so if you wouldn't mind. I'll be on my way, said the man. I don't have a telephone, but you can write to me at this post office box. Noddy was still in the neighbouring room, hiding inside the cupboard with the door slightly ajar. Nonetheless, he has a clear and distinct memory of the sound of a pen scribbling against some paper, a process which took about 30 seconds, long enough for this mysterious visitor to have recorded his postal address. Moments later, the visitor was gone, and Noddy's lessons resumed as though nothing had happened. He asked his mother to explain what had happened. She replied, nothing happened, and I need you to forget whatever you heard from inside that cupboard. I didn't hear anything, said Noddy. Good, said his mother. There was nothing to hear. But Noddy never forgot what he'd heard that day. Two years later, his mother had a heart attack and was admitted into hospital. Noddy was left in the house alone. His mother was the only person who knew he was there. When the ambulance arrived, she assured him she had no next of kin. Three days later, Noddy's mother had not returned to the house. Noddy had been taught to use the telephone, although he'd never had the opportunity to use it. He looked up the details of the nearest hospital in the phone book and called asking for information. The person who answered the phone asked for the patient's name. He was unable to answer. His mother had never told him what her name was. Then they asked for his name. He ended the call. Later that day, Noddy called the hospital again, in character this time. He introduced himself as Brad Hartley, an American tourist who'd recently encountered a 40-something-year-old woman with a heart condition who he believed was a patient at the hospital. He didn't know her name, but he was hoping they had some information. Brad described this woman in detail, but without a name, they were unable to proceed further. Three more days passed. Noddy was fully prepared for the worst. His mother had died in hospital, leaving him alone in the house. His mother had told him exactly what to do, if an incident like this were ever to occur. There was a locked box in one of the kitchen cupboards containing £5,000 in cash. If his mother happened to die suddenly, Noddy had been instructed to take the money from the box, leave the house and walk seven miles to the nearest village using his map as a guide. From there, he'd take a train to the nearest city. And from there, he'd take a train to London, where he'd use his wide range of communication skills to find himself work and accommodation. What he did from there was up to him. Noddy didn't open the box. Instead, he searched the house for the slip of paper that mysterious visitor had jotted his P.O. box details into two years previously. His mother had clearly stated she had no interest in engaging with the community. The chances were that slip of paper was long gone. But surely, he thought, in spite of her reservations, she'd have done the sensible thing and kept hold of that man's details. What if she needed help? What if the house burned down and she had nowhere else to go? After hours of carefully rummaging through every cupboard, drawer and hidden compartment in their home, Noddy finally found the faded note, stuffed into a tin box full of copper coins. 
Noddy wrote a brief letter. He left his address and telephone number. Two days after the letter was posted, a woman arrived at the door. Noddy had literally never seen another woman apart from his mother. He panicked and failed to answer the door for several minutes. He answered the door, introducing himself to the woman as Brad Hartley. She asked if he was the boy who'd written that letter. He said yes. So that was that, said Noddy. I was taken off to the big house. Shortly after that, I learned my mother had passed away a number of days previously. I don't think I've ever quite gotten over that. But adjusting to my new environment was easy. This sounds like a strange thing to say, given that my mother was the only person I'd ever spent time with for the first 17 years of my life. If she'd spent those 17 years telling me never to speak to strangers, my reaction would have been dramatically different. But my mother had done the opposite of that. I'd spent 17 years being taught how to talk to strangers. Now here were a whole bunch of strangers I could finally use my skills on. I took to it like a Dr. Walter. Fascinating, said Benedict. It's an extraordinary life you must have had, Mr. Noddy. I realise there's a reason you were telling me this story, but I got so caught up in the details, I've forgotten what I was supposed to be learning. That's okay, said Noddy. I agree. It is an extraordinary story. Ever thought about selling the film rights to it? Mate, I said. That wouldn't be an option, said Noddy. You could make millions. I don't need to worry about money. But the story. It's a secret story, I cut in. That's the point, Benedict. Oh yes, of course. There was another point Mr Noddy was making as well, though, wasn't there? I think we got onto this subject, said Noddy, because I wanted to explain how someone like myself practices the art of infiltration. It's not just the same as acting. You, Mr Cumberbatch, are trained in acting for stage and screen. I was trained in the art of deception. As far as my mother was concerned, it was crucial I never revealed who I really was to anyone. If she'd lived to see the ways in which these skills have been applied, she'd probably be horrified. I'd like to think she'd also be very impressed. So what you're saying is, someone who's had this kind of training as these hand people supposedly have, they could infiltrate Brollywood Bank, even without the use of an inside man. Exactly, said Noddy. That's why we need to beat them to it. You mentioned having some questions, I said. Oh yes, said Noddy. For me, there's one major flaw in the plan, and that's the man's security. My question is, what level of training have these guys had? Oh, there's an on-site training programme, said Benedict, switching into company secretary mode. Weapons training takes place at a secure location, off-site. So, you're not hiring security men who are trained in the use of weapons already. You're actually training them all yourself. Oh, said Benedict, I probably should have mentioned earlier, the security chaps, they're not, well, they're not qualified in any way. They're more like interns, really. Interns, said Noddy. I've never heard of armed interns before. Are you paying these guys? We pay their expenses. Really? I blurted. Oh, said Benedict again. I didn't mention that to you either, Frank. Sorry, I... You don't think that's relevant? I snapped. 
You're dragging these young men out into the middle of nowhere, giving them no financial incentive to do their jobs properly, and you're giving them guns. Yes, said Benedict. Look, I said, I'm not suggesting violence is the answer to anything, but these guys have got every reason to hold a grudge against you and your cronies. You clearly have money. There's a hundred million quid in the basement. What's to stop them robbing the bank themselves? And shooting anyone who gets in their way? I hadn't thought of that. Obviously not. That's just the way the industry works, Frank. Unpaid internships are a foot in the door. A foot in the door for what? What is Brollywood's security team actually getting from this? Oh, said Benedict, I've just remembered something else I haven't mentioned yet. As I say, none of the security team are professionals in the field of security. They're actors. There were a few moments' silence as Noddy and I stared blankly into our cameras. Sorry, said Noddy after a while. It may be that that face mask is obscuring your voice a little there, Benedict, but I could swear you just said your security team are actors. They are, said Benedict. Like actual equity members, I said. Benedict nodded. Several of them have some decent credits too. There's a couple of former soap stars on the books at the moment, plus there's the up-and-coming talent. You should see the list of former staff. Goodness me, arguably it's what kick-started Tom Hardy's career. All right, enough of the name-dropping, mate, I said. We could all sit here arguing employment law from here to eternity. So let's just knock this debate on the head and consider what this means. Oh, and just to be clear, said Benedict, on the subject of guns, I was always against the idea. They're a relatively recent addition. Brollywood has been perfectly secure for over 20 years. It's only because famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons insisted on the need for armed guards that we reluctantly agreed to introduce them. God knows what old Hopper would make of all of this if he knew. Believe it or not, said Noddy, this actually puts my mind at rest. Having non-professional security staff is a huge advantage, especially if those security men are only really there as a networking opportunity. My question was going to be, how can you guarantee that a fight breaking out on the middle floor will lead to all four security guards abandoning their posts? A professional security team would be unlikely to fall for the bait. If these guys had been properly trained, they'll be thinking one step ahead. They'll be fully versed on these types of distraction techniques. Also, the whole point of having four guys there in the first place is that the whole of the site is covered at any one time. So even if a fight breaks out on the middle floor, the incident wouldn't require all four guards. Two men could easily break up that fight. A professional would know that. But if these people are members of the acting profession, each of them desperate for a part in Jason Isaac's next movie, you can virtually guarantee all four of them will be down there, vying for the man's attention. I see what you mean, I said. The only trouble is, this means there'd be an additional four trained actors in the room while I'm doing my Marty Pello impression. I wouldn't stand a chance with that. Good job we've got you on the team now, Noddy. How do you mean? said Noddy. How do you mean? I said. I won't be stepping in here, Frank, he said firmly. This whole plan hinges on you doing your Marty Pello. Really? I have faith in you. I'm sure you do, but why the hell do you think I'm the man for the job? You've just been talking about being a trained infiltrator. You could pull this off in your sleep. You could even do your Richard Branson. It would make more sense than Marty Pello showing up, to be honest. 
I could, said Noddy. Unfortunately, I'm retired now, Frank. I haven't done anything remotely like this since my heart attack. That was fifteen whole years ago. I wouldn't have a clue how to pull these kind of tricks off after all this time. All I can do is advise. This is a young man's game. The fact remains, I said, they're actors and I'm not. We'll train you up, said Noddy. I'll give you a crash course. I'm sure Benedict might have some tips too. I'm full of them, said Benedict. Sure, I muttered. You're full of something, all right, pal. We discussed the details in some more depth. The plan needed to be tweaked here and there, bearing social distancing in mind. Technically, if I was adhering to the guidelines properly, I'd have to start a fight with someone whilst maintaining a two-metre distance. I'd be wearing a face mask, which would partially compensate for my lack of a resemblance to Marty Pello. After the meeting, I typed the words, How tall is Marty Pello? into Google. Apparently, he's 5 foot 11, the exact same height as me, so that was a bonus in its own way. Not that it matters. No one can ever tell how tall someone is on screen. Apparently, Benedict's fans always expect him to be significantly taller than he is. He is also 5 foot 11. Maybe he could be Marty Pello, I thought. I sat at my desk, ready to make some notes on today's meeting. The robbery would take place in one week's time. Restrictions were due to be partially eased on Monday. We'd be in there on Wednesday. As luck would have it, according to the Brollywood booking system, Jason Isaacs was due to be playing with his puppet theatre there that very afternoon. Due to Brollywood's own COVID-19 policy document, yes, that's a real thing, only one member of the bank was permitted to use the facilities at any one time. Benedict and myself would be exempt from these rules, as tours for new members would continue as normal. What it did mean was, when I started that fight with Jason Isaacs, there wouldn't be a crowd of other celebrities standing by to interject. Every cloud and all that. Anyway, there I was, ready to start my notes, when my leg vibrated, signifying a text. I pulled my phone from my pocket and saw the name. I dropped the phone on the floor. I scrambled around for a while before snatching it up. Glinda. Or at least, I'd assumed it was a message from Glinda. It was Glinda's number. Hi, said the text. This is Glinda's friend Max. I'm very sorry to say Glinda passed away yesterday. I'm just getting in touch with everyone in her contacts list. I don't know if you guys were close, but anyway, I'm sure she would want you to know. God bless you. I dropped the phone on the floor again. I left it there this time. I went out for a long walk. It started raining. I got wet. I carried on walking. The rain stopped and the sun came out. I got dry. I returned to my room a couple of hours later and gently picked up the phone from the floor. I lay in my bed and read that message again. I typed some words as a reply, not really thinking what I might say, just allowing the text to flow right out. I'm devastated, I typed. My God, this virus is just horrible. I pressed send, then for some reason got paranoid that what I'd said could be interpreted as sarcasm. I wrote another quick text. I'm not being sarcastic, I really am devastated. I pressed send, then reread the first text, realising as I did so that it did not appear to be in any way sarcastic.
which probably made the second text look a little odd. I wrote a third text saying, very sorry for the odd second text and very sorry for your loss. No worries, Glinda's friend Max replied. I wondered who Max was. I didn't recognise the name. Was he one of those guys I met in the tent that night? Possibly. It didn't matter. I didn't care who he was. I cared that Glinda was dead. I texted, When's the funeral? Sorry, Max replied. It's limited to a very small number of people. I understand. I texted back. I won't be going, of course. I was just wondering, so maybe I could do something on the day to mark the occasion or whatever. Celebrate her life. It's on Friday, Max texted back. Oh, I texted. That's quick. That's the way it goes with funerals, I guess, Max texted back. Could you tell me where it's taking place, I texted. Maybe I could hover somewhere outside the cemetery and watch from a distance. It's a crematorium, Max replied, and that doesn't sound like a good idea, mate. With all due respect, you'd probably look like a stalker or something. Max was starting to get on my nerves, but I suppose he was right. A couple of hours later, I texted him again. I guess someone will be doing a eulogy and all that, but do you think if I wrote something as a tribute, they'd read it out for me? No, Max replied, I don't think so. I realise you don't know who I am, I texted, but Glinda and I were very close. I fell in love with her, I think. I actually do know who you are, Max texted. Glinda mentioned you. I really don't think she felt the same way, so it's probably best if you move on with your life. Bit harsh, pal, I replied. I'm in mourning here. I'm going to turn this phone off now, Max replied. I've notified everyone that he's notifying. I won't be turning it back on again. Once again, sorry for your loss, and God bless you. I replied with a quick-fire sad face emoji, and that was that. A minute later, I phoned Jamie. He didn't reply. He texted a few minutes later. Sorry, can't talk. I'm working. Have you heard the news? I texted back. Yes, he replied. It's very sad. Catch up another day, mate. I was dying to tell him about how the meeting went. I had a whole chunk of Noddy's backstory to fill him in on. It would have to wait. I went downstairs and flopped myself into the living room couch. Uncle Claude was watching the news. He said, As the horse said to the barman, Frank, why have a long face? You may have mixed those two characters up, I said. Oh, so I have, he said. I thought of a good one the other day as it happens. A man walks into a bar. To his surprise, the usual barman has been replaced with Roger Federer. The man says, what are you doing here? Federer says, the landlord was looking for someone who could serve quickly. The trouble is, I'm a tennis player with no actual bar experience. The irony is, he'd have been better off asking a regular member of the public to work behind this bar. I have to balance this job up with my international sports career. Putting this rotor together has been a total nightmare. <laughs> I laughed for the very first time that day. <laughs> it's very good that, I said. What's the matter with you? He said. Just lost a friend to COVID, I said casually. Oh my God. He said, that's awful, absolutely dreadful. Can I get you anything, a drink or... Claude cut himself short and covered his eyes. You okay? I said. 
I'll be okay, he said. Honestly, there's no need to cry. You didn't even know her. Just makes me think of your dad, that's all, he said. The way he went, I mean, at least he's escaped all this virus business. He'd have hated all this not being able to leave his house. He hated being in the house. I know, I said. I hardly even met the guy. Claude chuckled at that. Ah, that's true enough, he said. Well, you got me now at least. I'm not going anywhere. Good to hear, I said. You can go and stick the kettle on if you like. Will it suit me? said Claude brightly. <laughs> Good one, I said. That's what they call a dad joke, isn't it? he said. I believe that's what they call it. How do you want your tea? he said. In a cup, I roared, slapping him on the back. You see, two can play at that game. When Uncle Claude returned with the drinks, we watched the end of the news followed by a panorama documentary about the prison system. I can stick something else on, he said. This is fine, I said. I thought it might bring back a few too many unhappy memories, you know. Are you kidding? I said. I had a brilliant time in prison. Some of the best days of my life, in fact. That's not funny, Frank. It's not a joke. Well, it's good to hear you enjoyed yourself, I suppose. It's just a bit surprising, seeing as it would be most people's worst nightmare. That's what I always thought it would be, but... Halfway through the documentary, I decided to finish that sentence. I never experienced any of this stuff. There was never any threat of violence. No one tried pushing drugs on me. Everyone just left me alone. It was really very civilised. Civilised? Well, not exactly civilised. There were fights breaking out all over the place, come to think of it. I just never got involved. From what they're saying on this programme, Frank, surely you'd have been a prime target for abuse. An educated man who's lived your entire life on the straight and narrow, aside from that one little blip. And these private contractors running the prisons on the cheap, prisoner safety is hardly a guarantee. I always felt safe, I said. Why? I don't know. I suspect my cellmate has something to do with it. I was his friend and... I don't really know how he managed it because he literally never spoke to anyone apart from me, but it's a very good question, actually. How did he manage that? Was he some kind of a mob boss? In his own way, maybe he was, but then no one knew who he was or why he was there. I'll have to ask him about that. Ask him? said Claude. Frank, I do hope you are not involved in any funny business with this fella. Funny business, I said. Don't worry, mate. I just happen to still be in touch with my former cellmate. He's on the straight and narrow too, has been for years. Well, uh, good for him, I suppose, said Claude. What's his name, by the way? He doesn't have one. Oh, well, there's a joke in there somewhere, isn't there? A man with no name walks into a bar. A security guard says it's table service only. Please, can I take your name for NHS Track and Trace? The man says, I don't have a name. And the security guard says, oh, in that case, I'll just call you, uh, help me out here, Frank. I like the setup, I said. I'm, I'm sure there's something. Just give me a minute. Oh, I need a pen and paper for this one, said Claude, fishing around in his empty pockets. It's okay, I said. I've got this one, I think. Really? Far away? The security guard says, I'll put you down as Clint Eastwood. And the man with no name says, why? He says, he played a character called the man with no name in those westerns. Which westerns, says the man with no name? 
The security guard isn't quite sure of the term off the top of his head. Tentatively, he replies, Spaghetti? The man with no name replies, I only really came in for a pint of beer. Claude laughed so hard his mask elastic snapped. The dad jokes continued throughout the evening. I have to say, I was beginning to really enjoy Uncle Claude's company. Maybe I'd finally reached an age where I could appreciate the art of punning. There may have been more to it than that, I'm not sure. The trouble is, I enjoyed Uncle Claude's company so much that evening that I ended up lying awake, racked with guilt over the fact that I'd had such a nice time. Glinda had just died. Maybe Glinda had been right all along and I wasn't really in love with her. Lockdown had amplified whatever desire I'd had. Still, I should at least make some attempt to mourn her passing. Glinda had lost her life under truly horrific circumstances. I hadn't shed a single tear. The truth was, I didn't know how I was supposed to react. I felt awful, but not because Glinda had died. I felt bad because I knew I should have been feeling something instead of nothing. After a while, I realised this wasn't the reason I couldn't get to sleep. I wasn't actually racked with guilt. I felt a little bit guilty about not feeling guilty, but I could have happily forgotten all about it were it not for the question Uncle Claude asked me earlier. Had Noddy really protected me in prison? My mind kept flashing back to that moment on my first day inside when that psycho had lunged towards me with his head then backed away as soon as he saw Noddy standing next to me. This was the one and only moment where I'd felt in any way threatened by another inmate. Clearly something wasn't right. I should have been a punching bag for these guys, day in and day out for six whole months. In hindsight, it ought to have been clear from the start that Noddy was more than he appeared to be. He wasn't an anonymous mute who no one knew anything about. The opposite was true. Everyone in that place knew who Noddy was. Well, everyone apart from me, which was ironic given the fact that I was the only person he actually spoke to. I'd recently been introduced to the community which explained a lot. Yet there was a great deal that Noddy's association with the community had failed to explain. In fact, now that I discovered Noddy was a member of an extremely secret society, I was even more confused than before. The last thing the community wanted was a fearsome reputation amongst the criminal fraternity. They'd gone to great lengths to ensure they had no reputation whatsoever. The only explanation I could think of was that Noddy somehow had a foot in both camps. He was a community member who was also involved in conventional organised crime. This made no sense whatsoever. The community operated under strict ethical codes. They were entirely non-violent. They only committed crimes against large organisations who could realistically lose a few million pounds and survive intact. The fact that Noddy was somehow universally known and feared within the prison system was nonsensical, and yet I'd seen it with my own eyes. And here I was, days away from participating in a multi-million pound heist with this guy. I'd always felt like I knew him. Perhaps it simply wasn't possible to know someone who'd lived such a long and complicated existence. I had no idea what I was supposed to do next. But there in the darkness at 4am, I decided I needed to see him. Properly see him. Face to face. I texted him. 
At five minutes past four, Noddy texted me back. He agreed to go for a walk with me in Heaton Park. He was free first thing in the morning. I suppose I better go to sleep then, I texted back. See you soon, Frank, came the instant reply. Thank you for listening. You now have the choice of moving straight on to episode 7 or sticking around for the optional bonus content that will appear right after the theme song. It is called the footnote section. Of course you know that. You must have heard the first five already, yeah? You listened to every single bit of it, yes? Yes, you did. (laughs) The footnote section. It's a lot of fun. Check it out if you like or I will see you in episode 7. If you like what you've heard, please visit my website frankburton.co.uk for more information about me and my work. I have another podcast called I Like the Sound. I've written several books, including the first two instalments of the Ragbag series, Everything I Am and Getting Away With It. I recently made a four-part podcast series with David Ebar from the band Herman Dune. It's called Not On Top, and I have to say it is a wonderful thing. I will see you all very soon. So, footnotes for episode 6. We're at episode 6 already. Imagine that. Um, this is, well, I can imagine that quite easily. This seems to be taking a very long time. <laughs> um, I'm recording these bits and bobs kind of in between doing other things, these uh, footnotes. So, um, it feels like a never-ending task to me because I just keep trying to slot it in amongst other things. Uh, I'm not saying that I'm not enjoying it. It's great fun. Um, don't get me wrong. You know what happened um, either last time or the time before? I was talking about the village people and just wondering aloud. You know, the, the pop group, the village people, you know. You know what I'm talking about, the village people, yeah? And uh, for the second time, um, the universe seems to be giving me kind of further bits of information about things that I've talked about on this podcast. Do you remember a couple of episodes back I was talking about 
the depiction of alcoholics in film and TV. And then the following day after I recorded that, I read this article that kind of debunked a lot of what I was saying and that the, there, there are now quite a lot of on-screen characters who are much more authentic in terms of the portrayal of alcoholism and various different addictions, etc. So uh, that was the universe calling out to me to tell me that I was wrong. And once again, uh, it's happened again. Um, I was talking about the village people a couple of days later because what I was saying about the village people was uh, my exact thoughts about the village people at the time which I was just kind of vocalizing you know an idle thought that popped into my head as I do on these footnotes things I said I wonder what the right-wing media will have made of the village people at the time the sort of uh, homophobic right-wing media would they did they just let them get on with it or did they uh, frown upon that sort of thing and write articles saying let's ban this filth I didn't know what the answer was at the time and then literally a couple of days later I was reading uh, Mark Ratcliffe's book it's called Crossroads Mark Ratcliffe the uh, the radio DJ uh, if you're outside the UK you might not know who he is but he's a bit of a legend uh, in this country uh, legend of radio broadcasting at the very least uh, in this country so he's written this book called uh, Crossroads, which is very good. It's all about uh, pivotal moments in the history of popular music. And it's written with Mark Radcliffe's signature style of uh, blunt humour and also a very great and deep love for his subject matter. It's a great book and um, he's a great guy, so I suggest that you check out the book Crossroads. But it, there's a bit about the... There's a chapter in there about the Disco Sucks movement which I'd heard of, but I, I didn't really know exactly what it was because it was before my time. But there was a whole movement in the 1970s in the USA and they called themselves Disco Sucks and they wore kind of, you know, T-shirts with Disco Sucks written on it and stuff like that. And there was there was even a, a an incident. Well, it wasn't an incident. It was like a, a, a properly organised event. Some guys got together in a big football stadium in the USA and um, they this massive pile of disco records and burnt them ceremoniously burnt all these disco records because they hated disco you can tell they hated disco because the name of their movement was disco sucks and uh, as Radcliffe points out that they were very much supported by the kind of right-wing media in um, the USA in particular sort of right-wing radio hosts would very much support this campaign. <laughs> I don't know what the campaign was. Just like, get rid of disco music. You know, these people are just the ultimate killjoys, are they not? They're burning a pile of records. It's something very, very Nazi about that, isn't there? Very, very similar to uh, you know Hitler burning books and stuff like that. Really horrible, really horrible people. As Radcliffe quite rightly points out, if you examine this in any kind of detail, it becomes quite apparent that there is uh, a very strong undercurrent of homophobia and racism. Disco being associated with black artists and LGBT artists, uh, well, not necessarily LGBT artists, but the LGBT community were uh, welcomed with open arms into the disco community as exemplified by the success of the village people, I guess. And uh, whereas the Disco Sucks guys were white American rock fans 
who are ostensibly heterosexual, not necessarily heterosexual, but ostensibly heterosexual. If you look at it in any detail, it's there's something deeply kind of uh, racist and homophobic about this campaign to rid the world of disco. <laughs> of all the things to rid the world of, rid the world of disco records. Horrible people. But there's something very funny about it as well. You know, there's something that be so ridiculous about burning a big pile of disco records. What are you trying to achieve? You had to purchase them. This is the thing. They had to purchase the records in order to burn them. You're actually supporting. <laughs> doing nothing to help your cause. If you're buying a big massive pile of disco records, you really are supporting disco as a genre of music, are you not? Idiots. <laughs> it's a long time ago and still I'm angry about it. <laughs> oh, there we go. There we go. And I forgot all about the, the real connection that I have to the village people, uh, which is that I'm a big fan of the Pet Shop Boys. And uh, of course, one of the Pet Shop Boys' biggest songs was a village people cover, Go West. And um, I, you know what? When Go West came out, I really didn't like it. I found it very annoying and cheesy and not in keeping with the rest of the Pet Shop Boys' oeuvre. Is that how you say it? Is that how you say oeuvre? I don't know. Is it oeuvre or oeuvre? I don't know. Um, <laughs> Marty Pello in, uh, in Brollywood uh, says oeuvre. So, uh, <laughs> you know, and that is me saying it. So I'm, I'm very much at odds with myself on, on how to pronounce the word oeuvre or oeuvre. I don't know. How would the French say it? It's a French word, isn't it? But yeah, I think at the time, you know, I was really into them as a as a teenager. Just felt that Go West was a step too far to be a, a step too far into kind of the cheesy pop world, which I I never really associated the Pet Shop Boys with. Uh, they weren't like a cheesy act, uh, as far as I was concerned. But um, you know, in 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 more recent years, I've I've come to love it. Really, it's it's such a great that I feel good song and and um what what they were doing with it is very kind of interesting as well in terms of using the um the imagery from the fall of the berlin wall and stuff like that in the uh, in the video but but of course they chose to cover that song because i believe neil Tennant had recently come out of the closet and this was kind of his sticking two fingers up to the right-wing media i guess who were very much against that sort of thing horrible horrible people it, it was a obviously a great thing that he was doing and i i, I watched um i watched the other day uh, this is reminding me because i i saw uh, the pet shop boys set at glastonbury i didn't go i watched it on the tv and uh, the the pet shop boys set at glastonbury was uh, was uh, fantastic i actually saw them at glastonbury myself uh, as i have mentioned uh, at great length in a previous episode i went to see uh, david bowie and in glastonbury in 2000 glastonbury festival that was great obviously I, I didn't realize at the time that the bowie set was going to be like this big kind of iconic show that would people would still be watching it in years to come you can get that performance on dvd and that you can stream it on spotify it's available as a live album on spotify that gig I didn't realise it was this big sort of iconic thing at the time. I, I thought Bowie was just doing another show. Apparently not. Apparently it was kind of the biggest gig of his life, I guess. I don't know. But, um, you know, it was, it was great. I, I listened back to it recently and I, I forgot 
uh, the, the, <laughs> I forgot, forgot how funny he was uh, making jokes in between the songs and stuff like that and just uh, just just being very playful with the crowd yeah I, I forgot about that I just I remembered enjoying myself but you know it was 22 years ago how, how do you expect me to remember all the jokes that that Bowie made during that show um, <laughs> I think I, I was uh, inebriated also, but um, that, that's another story. And I, at the same year, at the same festival, I saw the Pet Shop Boys at Glastonbury, and I took uh, two of my the two of my friends who I went with, who had absolutely no interest in the Pet Shop Boys. I dragged them both along, and they had a great time as well. It was such a uh, they're such a great live act. Uh, it's uh, it's great to me that they're they're still doing this as well. I know that they're currently. Uh, I'm recording this in 2022, by the way, for people in the future. Um, but uh, they're currently doing their Greatest Hits tour, and I tried to get a ticket for uh, the show that they did at Manchester Arena. And it had sold out within like months prior to the show taking place. It's, it's a massive stadium just sold out. And it, it's kind of like... It's, it's unbelievable in a way. It's kind of like... Um, with pop stars from the 80s, you kind of just assume that, that they have had their time. But, I mean, the Pet Shop Boys are... are Obviously, clearly, they're so popular. They're selling out stadiums within, you know, months in advance of the show taking place. They're doing ex- extremely well for themselves. I mean, you see the set at Glastonbury as well. The size of the crowd is uh, absolutely packed out, and everybody, uh, all the shots that they were showing in the crowds, everyone was just singing along. Everyone knew all the words to the songs and all that sort of thing. It's uh, there's so much love for them, and uh, I love them. Obviously, I'm a big fan. Of, uh, of the Pet Shop Boys, <laughs> I'll tell you something else. They're not they're not resting on their laurels, are they? They're uh, they're not just peddling, not just trotting out the hits and taking a paycheck at the end of it. They they uh, they really put some thought into the theatricality of the performance and stuff like that. So a very very strange um, opening to the show. I assume that the set that they did at Glastonbury was just like a a replica of the show that they've been doing on tour. The Greatest Hits Tour. Um, it starts off. It's really weird. <laughs> it starts off. Neil Tennant comes on the stage, and he's where it's just him, on his own. Um, his his bandmate is nowhere to be seen. The little podium thing that Chris Lowe stands behind to do whatever it is that he does. <laughs> and I'm not entirely sure what 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 it is that he does. Uh, <laughs> pretends to play a keyboard I guess um well or maybe he does play I don't know I don't know what he does this is even mentioned in one of the the Pet Shop Boys songs there's a song called Yesterday I, I Was Mad which was a, about their relation about being in the Pet Shop Boys basically and lots of jokes in there about the way that people uh take them and the sort of weird things that people say to them and one of the things is about uh, their live shows and uh the line in the song is of course it's all on tape but no one will find out and uh i don't know whether that is he saying that because it is all on tape but no one will find out or is that just <laughs> is he making a joke that people think that it's all on tape um i don't i, I don't know uh, what a musician like chris lowe i don't know what he does to play live or, or indeed you know any of the electronic acts like orbital uh, who play these stadium shows? I don't know what Orbit will do on stage. I know the twiddling, twiddling knobs. I don't know what the knobs are doing. Um, it's kind of beyond me, really. But anyway, Neil is on stage on his own, and he's wearing this weird mask, and he's just standing still, 
behind the, uh, with a microphone on a stand, which is unusual. It's not the sort of thing that he would usually do. And um, he sings these two songs <laughs> to open the show with. Stood, standing completely still, you can't see his face. He's on his own. It's like it's really weird. It's not not what you would expect from a Pet Shop Boys show at all. And I just I was watching this. Is, is he going to do the whole show like this? It really felt like he was trolling, trolling or trolling, trolling the audience with this uh, weird performance. And then uh, second song, he whips the mask off and goes, "Way!" <laughs> and, uh, and then then he does his usual thing of kind of. It, and he says, like, uh, yeah, sorry, there's a technical issue. Uh, Chris can't be here at the moment, but you will see him later on. OK, I thought, yeah, that's weird. So what, is Chris ill or something? And then he, he just kind of, uh, so he's back to his normal self again. He sings another couple of songs, just still him on his own. And then the backdrop that's behind him kind of lifts up and he's got a full band. And Chris is there behind his uh, podium and... Um, and he's got kind of drummers, guitarists, keyboardists, and all. all but you know what a full band is? <laughs> a full band is a full band. Well, he had two drummers. Uh, you know, so uh, obviously this this is something that happens at every gig, I presume. But um, he really did make it look like something had gone wrong. Uh, there were some technical issues at the start of the show, and that's why he had to come on with his mask on. And uh, he kept referencing it uh, later on. About halfway through the show, he said, um, yeah, sorry about the technical issues we had <laughs> earlier on. And uh, there were no technical issues, obviously. But, I mean, they really made it look like like there were. And I love things like that. I really do. I, I love it when, like... Uh, <laughs> like an artist on stage like deliberately like messes things up and you don't know whether it's a real mistake or or whether it's <laughs> or whether it's deliberate and um you know like i say i mean that they could just you know, get on stage and just trot out their old songs and uh, get paid and go home but they're they're doing some kind of real interesting stuff, really. Even though it's just like a really silly thing to do, it was very much in keeping also with uh, the way that they are as a band. Um, God love them, the Pet Shop Boys. Reminds me also of, um, I mean, talking about a, a very very different musical artist, but I've I've been listening to um, Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers' uh, first album quite a lot recently, and uh, the song that keeps. Uh, popping up for me is uh, a song called I'm Straight. The premise of the song is that he's leaving a message on, on a girl's uh, answering machine, I think. And um, he's just leaving this long rambling message, uh, but it's a song also. And it's about his, his rival, who he calls Hippie Johnny. And the chorus goes, uh, I'm straight and I want to take his place. So he's talking about... It's not, it doesn't mean straight in the sense of uh, heterosexual straight. He means straight is... As in, he's not on drugs like Hippie Johnny is. <laughs> and it very much sounds like he's making it up as he goes along. It sounds very, very kind of improvised. But I don't think it is. I think uh, it's a little too perfect for me. Um, I don't actually know whether it was improvised or not. But to me, I think... Uh, also, from what I know about the Modern Lovers' first album is that, that the songs were in existence a long time before the 
record was recorded as well. So I assume it's not an improvised song. But I, I love the fact that it sounds like it is. He's, he's just throwing in all of these kind of... Uh, oh, by the way, and it just, just kind of, you know... Uh, every little thought that pops into his head just pops straight out of his mouth. I, I like the fact that, well, I assume it's all very carefully worked out. Daniel Johnson did this a lot, but I mean, I know that Daniel Johnson, a lot of his songs were uh, improvised, and you, you can also tell that they are as well. But I mean, it's uh, such a great. Do you know? Do you know about Daniel Johnson? Yeah, Daniel Johnson. I know he's he's got a you know quite a cult following, I guess. But I'd imagine a lot of people don't know who Daniel Johnson is. Such an amazing artist. If, you, if you've never heard his music, go and check it out. It's, uh, it's so... What is, the word, what is the word I would use to describe it? It's like nothing else, really. I, th I think he's one of those artists who he really does have his own voice. There's a song that I keep coming back to of Daniel Johnson's. It's on an album called It's Spooky, which... Uh, it's one of my favourite albums of all time, really. It's uh, a collaboration with an artist called... Is it Jed Fair? Jed Fair, I think it is. That's the guy's name, isn't it? And uh, there's a song on there that I play quite a lot called uh, Frankenstein Versus the World. And uh, it's just amazing. It's just, it's so... Um, and it's, it's a good example of uh, Daniel Johnson's particular style. It's got a very kind of childlike... Vo not, not a childlike voice, he's got a man's voice, but he has a very kind of childlike tone and very much uh, a lot of the things that he says are things that a child would say. And that Frankenstein versus the world is, to me, it's kind of, it's obviously a fully grown adult man singing as though he's a six-year-old boy <laughs> talking about Frankenstein. And he, you know, he even does that thing where he's talking about Frankenstein's monster, but he calls him Frankenstein. Yeah, I'm sure he knows that. You know, <laughs> you know, he's uh, he's obviously a very intelligent man. I'm sure he's made that mistake deliberately, that uh, Frankenstein is the name of the scientist and the monster is just called the monster. Um, <laughs> but it's it's so good. I I, I really I, could, I honestly I could play I could play that song on repeat endlessly, and and I have done that as well in the past. It's one of those few songs that I've. I've stuck on repeat and just listened to like several times over. Uh, Frankenstein conquers the world. <laughs> so it's really funny, but also um, I don't know what it is about it that, that really kind of gets me. I, I think it is that, that thing, that kind of childlike quality that Dan Daniel Johnson has, you know, and, and he, sing, he sings like uh, the song about Casper the Friendly Ghost. That, that's really really good I mean I know that because uh, it's very complicated his relationship with Casper the Friendly Ghost because I know that he had like a psychotic breakdown and, and um, he uh, he believed that he was Casper the Friendly Ghost during that time so I mean he has a there's a documentary about it I think it's called The Devil and uh, The Devil and Daniel Johnson or The Devil versus Daniel Johnson I haven't seen it, but I've I've heard really good things about it. I really should check out that documentary before I recommend it to people. But I, you know, I will certainly recommend Daniel Johnson's music. There's uh, talking about the improvisational thing as well. You know, the Frankenstein versus the world sounds like he's making it up uh, off the top of his head, which he may well have been. I don't know whether he was or not with that particular song. Um, and th there's one I can't remember which album it's on. But um, I love it. It's a song called, uh, Har I think it's called Harley Man. 
and uh, it's just uh, it's just Daniel Johnson making fun out of this biker that he heard. Um, he heard the guy say, "I'm a Harley man, and I'll be a Harley man until the day I die." And uh, <laughs> and th this song that he that Daniel Johnson recorded as a response to hearing this kind of like slightly ludicrous thing that this biker said at this <laughs> at that motorway stop, whatever it was, wherever it was that he heard him say this thing. And it, it just kind of making fun of what the biker said, but it's it's completely like it's an a cappella recording, and he's just going, hey, "I'm a Harley man, I'm gonna be a Harley man to be dead." So funny, but also it's kind of you can you can feel that frustration that he has with people like that when he hears people say stupid things. He just moved towards kind of making fun of that person. And I'm a Harley. I'm going to be a Harley man till the day I die. What a ridiculous thing to say! But he he doesn't he, he <laughs> like he do, he doesn't say it. He's not doing that kind of commentary on it. He's he's singing it as though as though he is that man. But he's he's very clearly making fun of that man as well. And I get the impression that that was just uh, maybe even just recorded in one take. Um, <laughs> It's just he he felt the need to record that song and just I assume it was made up off the top of his head, um, but you know what a great creative uh, artist I, be, I believe I believe he's uh, he passed away a, a few years ago, um, which is obviously a a great loss to music, but um, I think you should uh, check his uh, check his work out, Daniel Johnson. Um, what else have I been indulging in recently? I've read Tracy Thorne's book. Obviously, you know Tracy Thorne. You know Tracy Thorne, yeah? From Everything But The Girl. Tracy Thorne. You know? Step up the train. That one. Yeah. Um, she's great. What, what a great writer she is. So I've read two of her books now. The book about growing up in suburbia called Another Planet. I read that one uh, a while ago. It's a really, really great book. It's, it's one of those things that's just kind of a book about nothing you know it's about kind of how boring it was growing up in suburbia in the 70s and how little there was to do about also kind of getting into the punk scene and uh just kind of getting away from this boring life into like uh, an exciting life and the, the, the sort of life that was going on in the city at the same time in comparison to this kind of boring town that she grew up in it's just a really well written book i guess it, it feels like it's a friend talking to you, you know. It's one of those things. It's very difficult to, to get that tone right, I think, as a writer. And uh, I guess it's one thing that I have struggled with in, in my own way. I, I try, but... Um, <laughs> and what I'm trying to do with the ragbag books, really, is just make it feel like it's a friend talking to you. And maybe I've achieved that, maybe I haven't. Um, it's, it's entirely up to you whether you decide whether I have or not. But... Um, I think Tracy Thorne has definitely done it with, with both of these books that I've read so far, um, Another Planet, and uh, the one that I've just read is uh, called My Rock and Roll Friend, which is kind of, kind of a rock biography of uh, the drummer in the go-betweens, Lindy Morrison. So it's not your conventional rock biography, so it's, it's about kind of uh, the drummer from a... a fairly obscure band, I suppose, the go-betweens. You know, they have got a cult following, but it's more about... Tracy Thorne's friendship with Lindy Morrison and it's more about kind of the culture of the music scene and the way that the music scene can be 
extremely unkind to women and uh, that continues to be the case but uh, it's uh, yes, uh, such an interesting story actually um, of uh, the I, just, I can't I can't claim to be a, a fan of the go-betweens I'm, I'm not really uh, I never really got into the music I didn't really connect with it but um, I uh, I really like this book I really like this story about these two friends really I highly recommend that you check out Tracy Thorne as a writer I think she's great so uh, there you go um, I've, I've done um, quite a bit of talking now and um, let's see um, <laughs> I haven't even I haven't even done the references yet this is supposed to be the references section isn't it but but I'll, I'll be honest with you dear listener I don't know what the <laughs> I'm kind of recording this blind if you like because um, I'm just kind of uh, just opened up the microphone and talking into it and I didn't make any notes about what um, <laughs> didn't make any notes about any of the cultural references for this time I'm sure that there are some uh, let me have a quick look I believe it's starting at what is going to be chapter 20 in the book but um, the the audio version in the podcast isn't arranged in chapters because it's a podcast <laughs> ah. Well, uh, I don't know. I'm just having a quick scroll through here, <laughs> literally going back through my own book and re scrolling through it and looking for cultural references. I'm sure there are some. I don't know. I can't be bothered, to be honest with you. I really can't be bothered. Figure it out for yourself if you want. You know what I mean? Um, I don't even know if I'm looking at the right, the right chapters. But, you know, if you've made it this far uh, with me just talking about the Pet Shop Boys and Daniel Johnson and you've been on the edge of your seat waiting for me to tell you what the references are earlier on in the episode um you know i recommend you take a good hard look at yourself <laughs> tell you what you're doing with your life <laughs> have you look at yourself in the mirror <laughs> uh that i'm joking obviously i'm joking i i, I um I, i'm sure that there are people who would like to to know uh, what the references are for this time i just don't know what they are <laughs> no in all seriousness I, d I don't think anyone cares do they no, nobody cares I, i'm not going to tell you what the references are i can't be bothered to look them up and uh, i've got a lot to do i've got to re-record a bit of this damn thing now um just, uh, really does my head in having to do an audiobook i really uh, i enjoy it to an extent but it, it really having to re-record bits i've had to re-record chapters 15 and 16 twice now well well i've re-recorded them once and and the audio went wrong again on, on both of them so i'm gonna to have to re-record them again and it's good that they're not long chapters oh, it's just it's just a, it's a never-ending process this recording malarkey yeah doing these footnotes but you know like i say i don't think anyone really cares about the the uh, the references maybe maybe I'll just stop doing the referency bits and just uh, kind of ramble on in the next one because I've got three more of these to do um, and I just can't be bothered to go through all the <laughs> can't be bothered to go through the whole text of the book and figure out what all the cultural references are let's not bother doing it I think next time actually I've I've got I've got a trick up my sleeve for next time something that I'd like to talk about next time so. Just to keep you in suspense, I'm not going to tell you what it is. You will have to listen to the next episode and then all the way after the theme music ends and then you get onto the footnotes bit. And then I'll tell you what it is I'm going to tell you then, okay? Until then...
enjoy yourselves. Why not, hey?